Well, good morning. <laughs> it occurred to me if we just paid close attention to uh, the hymns that we sing around Christmas, a Christmas morning message wouldn't really be that necessary, would it? But I think there's some worth in taking some time to slow down and pay attention to what we're saying. So much of the fun of Christmas is in the anticipation. Uh, King Solomon, I think, was onto something when he said, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So uh, often my Christmas anticipation can be summed up in three beautiful words, sausage cheese balls. <laughs> so uh, if you haven't tried them before, you can't have any of mine. Um, I'm joking, of course, but you get the idea. Much of what we enjoy, especially around Christmas, is desire anticipated and then fulfilled. We have our decorations, planning, cooking, uh, and then execution. So then again, Solomon was also right to say, if you have found honey, or in my case, sausage cheese balls, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. So uh, again, I'm being silly, but my point is this. We all look forward to something in Christmas. We have a desire that we wish uh, fulfilled. And to varying degrees, Christmas Day delivers. Some years more or less than others. And then December 26 rolls around and we see, uh, we begin the trudging process of throwing away wrapping paper, taking down the lights and storing the decorations. December 26 can be one of the saddest days because after the emotional high of the 25th, life goes back to normal or at least it does until the next thing that we build our anticipation for. These aspects of Christmas, like the lights, the decorations, the traditions, are of course good and fun things to look forward to in our various ways of celebrating the holiday. But what makes the holiday a holy day? What is it we are actually celebrating? I know many of you have grown up in church and can answer that very quickly. We know the story of Christmas. We've read the Bible passages. We've sung the songs. We acted in the nativity plays growing up. For most of us, this is familiar ground. My concern this morning, first for myself, and then to share with you, is for a fresh taste of a greater joy that goes beyond the familiar trappings of Christmas and lasts past December 26. The question I want to address is simple. When the angel we read about appeared to the shepherds, why did he say the good news he brought was of great joy? And furthermore, when the, when the shepherds witnessed that first nativity scene, if you will, why did they go away from it glorifying and praising God? As we will see, their joy had not to do with seeing angels and then finding a baby in a manger, but in who that baby was. The takeaway today is this question for us to ask ourselves, who is Jesus to me? This, I believe, is where we discover joy. The joy of Christmas has to do with who that baby is to you. So join with me, if you will, as we take a look at a familiar story in order to discern the relevancy of that first Christmas joy. We are, of course, in the gospel according to Luke chapter 2, as was read earlier. The author of this gospel, Dr. Luke, has been a longtime travel companion and friend of the Apostle Paul. 
As they would travel place to place, uh, Paul likely had the Gospel of Matthew tucked under his arm. Luke then, during his downtime, perhaps while Paul is imprisoned in Rome, uh, has undertaken to compile a gospel for the Gentiles. He makes it clear in the outset of his uh, gospel, in the first four verses, if you want to turn there. He writes in Luke 1, 1 through 4, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that, they have, that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So what we are considering this morning is Luke's careful and orderly account of the life of Christ. As a good historian, Luke has concern for eyewitness testimony. He says that up front. We know that the same concern for eyewitness testimony is actually the foundation of the Christian faith and is reflected throughout the scriptures, such as when the apostles chose Judas's replacement. Uh, in Acts 1, 21 through 22, we read, uh, I believe it's Peter speaking to the apostles. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. In other words, someone who has uh, hung out with Jesus, knows his face, um, can identify him in person, and is actually able to attest to the resurrected Jesus as being the same guy. One of these men must, have, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. We have that same concern for eyewitness testimony when we look at Paul. Uh, he was speaking of Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and he makes the point that Jesus, quote, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So he practically invites his readers to go and verify his claim. Paul writes to people who can go and check with people who saw the risen Lord. Uh, we also have Peter's appeal to his own eyewitness testimony in 2 Peter 1.16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Far from looking at a cleverly devised myth this morning, uh, today's passage is the careful work of a historian who himself lived around the time of these events, who was able to gather testimony of eyewitnesses, maybe even interviewing Mary herself or at least G uh, James, Jesus' younger brother, and whose concern was for his reader's certainty, as he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What Theophilus needed, and what we need today, is certainty as to who Jesus is. To that end, Luke begins his gospel with the birth narrative. Our passage this morning is the last of three angelic announcements that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. The first announcement was when the angel Gabriel told the priest Zechariah that the old priest and his wife would give birth to the one who would become John the Baptist. This first angelic announcement, however, is met with doubt. You can see this in uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're looking at verse 18 and following. Uh, he... He asked the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He doesn't call his wife an old woman. 
Um, the angel redirects his focus, though, away from Zechariah's identity into his own. Zechariah says, I am an old man. The, Gabriel, uh, the angel responds, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. This first announcement foretold an unlikely event, an old couple having a baby, and is initially met with doubt. And you can read the rest of the story how everything is fulfilled exactly as, uh, as spoken. The second angelic announcement that Luke includes in this narrative was six months later when that same angel, Gabriel, arrived to Mary. You can see that starting in verse 26 and following. Here, though it is equally surprising and fear-inducing of a visit, Mary responds with humble acceptance. She is told her son will be great, the son of the Most High, one who will sit on the throne of his father David, and one whose kingdom will endure forever. She asks for clarity, not knowing how she, a virgin, could give birth. And she is told that it will be accomplished by God, such as this child will be the son of God. The second angelic announcement in Luke is met with faith, acceptance, and later we have the Magnificat, her praise. So now we come to the third angelic announcement in Luke's gospel. Of course, if you want, you can read of the other angelic visitation that Matthew records to Joseph uh, in Matthew 1, 20 through 25. But we're focusing here this morning on this third one in Luke. If you add up the time references uh, that you see in, verse, in the first chapter of Luke, the, the notations of months, and then if you assume Mary has a nine-month pregnancy, um, we begin to realize this third announcement comes roughly a year and a half after the first. So about a year and a half after the angel first arrived at Zechariah, you have this angelic visitation uh, out in the field. However, this one is not quite like the others. The first two announcements were preparatory and to the immediate parties affected. This one is celebratory and to complete strangers. We know why the angel came to Zechariah and Mary. Why did the angel come to shepherds? So I've structured the following survey of our passage under three questions I have about our passage. First question is simply, why angels? Second question, why shepherds? Third question and the majority of our focus, why joy? So first, why angels? While I was studying this passage, Pastor Klein mentioned a podcast series that Sinclair Ferguson put out this month in anticipation of Christmas, where he covered the subject of angels. His podcasts are short episodes and worth listening to, and his Things Unseen podcasts. And so to give credit where credit is due, I owe much of this section to the insights he provided. He goes after surveying several angelic appearances that we have in Scripture, uh, he observes, kind of in summary, the appearance of angels, uh, as we see it in the Bible, the appearance of angels is not a constant, everyday occurrence any more than the occurrence of miracles. They seem to be limited to specific periods in the story of the kingdom of God. And their common factor is that these were all periods of strategic defense and or advance of the kingdom of God. End quote. So basically, angels are often depicted in Scripture praising God, as we see here in our passage. And of course, they're always there in the background, even today. 
but they are also particularly present for major events. They are God's messengers and our ministers, as Hebrews says in verse 114, but they are also attentive witnesses to God's work. The text says a multitude of the heavenly host shows up. And so have you ever wondered which angels are there? Certainly, these are the morning stars who sang together and the sons of God who shouted for joy as they witnessed God creating the universe. Job 38 tells us that the angels were present at God's creation. Maybe the two angels who rescued Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are here. Maybe some of the angels whom Jacob witnessed ascending and descending from heaven showed up. Maybe the ones who fetched Elijah in a chariot of fire, or the ones who surrounded Elisha in 2 Kings 6, filling the mountain with horses and chariots of fire. Maybe some of these came. Maybe some of the angels who spoke to the prophets, such as Daniel came, who delivered the word of the Lord, that looked forward to such an event as the coming of the Messiah. In any event, these angels have been around since the beginning of creation and have witnessed and participated in many mighty acts of God. They have been curious about God's plan, as 1 Peter 1.12 makes clear. And Paul explains that the church is a testimony to them of God's wisdom. In uh, Ephesians 3.10, he says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So all this to say, angels have seen more than we can imagine of God's mighty works. They are curious of God's plan for redeeming mankind, and this night, they are here. Why angels? Simply, this is an event worthy of the witness and celebration of heaven. The angels are no mere performers of the heavenly choir. They themselves are witnesses of this newest development of God's work in the birth of Jesus, even as they proclaim it to the shepherds. As they see what God is doing, it is occasion for them to burst into joyful praise as they proclaim from their own hearts, glory to God in the highest. And so now we ask, why shepherds? Why include shepherds in the audience of this great advancement of the kingdom of God? So our passage begins right after the description of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. He was laid in a manger, and then we read, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, shepherds hold a mostly positive place in Scripture. Uh, David was a shepherd, and he famously referred to the Lord as his shepherd in Psalm 23. Other notable figures, um, as commentators point out, like Moses and Abraham, had also been shepherds at one point. In the New Testament, the shepherding image is often applied to leaders in the church. Uh, you have in John 21, Jesus tells Peter to feed my sheep. In Acts 20, Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders using a shepherding metaphor. In Ephesians 4.11, one of the gifts to the church is shepherds, namely pastors. And then also 1 Peter 5 is a classic example of the metaphor being applied to the elders in the church. The point is, the, the, it's overall a positive concept of shepherds. So why shepherds? Now apparently later in the 5th century AD, shepherds came to have a bad reputation. One of lying and thieving, so much so that their testimony in court was not accepted. 
Now, it's uncertain whether this reputation went as far back as the first century during the time of Jesus' birth. What we can say is that the shepherds were nothing special. They were ordinary men out and about at that time of the night and in that region and were therefore prime candidates for the announcement that evening. For this radical display of God's glory and the angelic host and for the first visitors of the incarnate God, God did not choose a prophet on a mountaintop or a king in his fortress or a scribe in his study, but ordinary shepherds out in the field. Why shepherds? Because they were ordinary, unimportant people. Because the Messiah was to have a humble birth. And because the message was that a Savior was born to them, as we will see. And now we ask, why joy? First, note that the angel himself characterizes his message as one of great joy. He says uh, in verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. As with the prior two angelic announcements, the angel's arrival is met with fear. And, it was, uh, and as was said to Zechariah and Mary when they encountered the angel, this angel says, Do not fear. The reason why the shepherds are not to fear is because despite the frightful appearance of the powerful and holy being in front of them that probably caught them by surprise, uh, he brings to them good news of great joy. Now this joy is characterized as being for all the people. Now this is most likely in specific reference to the people of Israel, uh, as Daryl Bach points out. And he reassures that later Luke does in fact indicate that Gentiles too will be blessed. However, this all the people is likely specifically Israel who was anticipating the Messiah. He whom Israel was to anticipate was arriving. This should be for the nation of Israel, as we said earlier, a desire fulfilled and a tree of life amidst a hope seemingly deferred, to again use the words of Proverbs 13:12. It should be for them a good news of great joy. And why is that? Well, first, uh, verse 11 in Greek, opens with a haughty clause. Uh, this is a Greek word which seems to here function causally, like a because. So you see in verse 11, uh, probably in English, you have for. So for or because uh, is the way it opens. Why is it a great joy for all the people? Because a Savior was born to you today who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. As we break this down, note that the reason for the joy is tied up in the identity of Christ. Like we said, the joy of Christmas has to do with who that baby is to you. So first, note the relevancy to the shepherds. He says, to you is born. This seems to echo the words of Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In a corporate sense, then, the shepherds are a part of the nation of Israel to whom the Messiah has come. The Messiah would be the king of their nation. Note, secondly, however, that the one who was born is described as a savior. Naturally, we ask, savior from what? Earlier in Luke, we are given the words of Zechariah when he prophesied after his son was born. So if you look, in uh, Luke 1, 68 and following, we see his prophecy after the birth of his son. 
uh, in 68 through 71, he speaks of the arrival of what he calls the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then he describes a physical salvation. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, and that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We know during this time that Israel is under the oppression and rule of a foreign government. And so this makes sense. Many of the Messianic prophecies point to a coming deliverer from enemies, so this is naturally expected. However, Zechariah also speaks of a spiritual salvation. Later on, you see uh, in verse 76, he's speaking of John. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zechariah acknowledges a need to be delivered both from physical enemies and from sin. An awareness of this problem of sin and the need for God to forgive uh, should not surprise us when we encounter it in the New Testament. It is throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 130, for example, the psalmist confesses, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who will stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. David likewise exclaims in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The followers of the Lord have always had to cast themselves on the mercy of God to forgive them of their sins. And as Hebrews 10 makes clear, the sacrifices of antiquity were an imperfect solution that had to be repeated year after year. The faithful in the midst of their obedience had to trust God to take care of their sins. They knew they needed a Savior. Though they had a sacrificial system in place, there were some anticipation of a new covenant and its forgiveness, as Jeremiah 31 says. And the servant of the Lord, who would come and be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, as Psalm 50, or Isaiah 53 says. All this to say, Old Testament believers knew they had a problem of sin that deserved death, and they had to trust God to forgive them through sacrifice. What they glimpsed, we see clearly. The debt of sin needed more than the death of animals. Forgiveness would mean absorbing the cost. To be saved, God himself would have to absorb that cost. He would have to pay the debt with the death of Jesus, who was himself God in the flesh. Also, if you look at Matthew 1.21, we see this very clearly connected to Jesus. When the angel arrived in uh, confirmed to Joseph not to divorce Mary, that this is in fact a child born of the Holy Spirit. He says, do not fear, she is that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then the reason for Jesus' name is specifically what we've been talking about. Verse 21 of chapter 1 in Matthew, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from Rome. I mean, no, he will save his people from their sins. So, um, interestingly, 
back in Luke chapter 2, this Savior the angel proclaims is also described as Christ and Lord. He is both the prophesied prophesied anointed one and is himself Lord. This uh, kurios is an appositional nominative, the word for Lord. Uh, You say Christ, Lord. And it seems to have from context an acknowledgement of Jesus' divinity to say this is Christ, namely uh, the Lord. We see in 2.9 that the glory of the Lord, uh, which would be, of course, God, is what accompanies the appearance of the angel. It's not just that the angel showed up, but the glory of the Lord surrounded them. Uh, In 2.15, the shepherds associate the angel's message with what the Lord has made known to us. As well, uh, Daryl Bach, the commentator, points out that earlier in Luke, Elizabeth referred to Mary as the mother of my Lord. We see that in 143. And Bach is helpful here. He says, the title, we're talking about Christ the Lord, does not detract from the main declaration of Jesus as the Davidic Messiah, but its presence here suggests that there is more present in Jesus than his merely being Messiah. The presence of this title serves to uh, tip Luke's hand about he sees Jesus, but Luke does not define the title here. He merely introduces it as a descriptive title of the Messianic Savior. I would go a little bit further to say, seeing as it is the angel identifying this coming one as the Lord, an angel speaking of a Lord, it seems more likely that this is, in fact, a declaration of Jesus' divine sovereignty. So, at any rate, we've been looking at Savior, Christ, the Lord, and what does that mean? Uh, The angel makes it clear that the reason why it is joyful news is not that a Savior was born, but their Savior. He says, to you, who mean? Uh, This is one who is both Christ and Lord. As we saw earlier, Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 1 rightly observed that we do not nearly need salvation from our enemies, but we need salvation from being the enemy. Whatever it was that ran through the shepherds' minds when they heard the term Savior, whether they thought first of a Savior from their enemies or a Savior from sin, it is clear to us today and likely to them as they contemplated it later that we need both. As the angel made it clear, the arrival of such a Savior should be for us as for them an announcement of very great joy. Evidently, it was a matter of joy to the angels themselves. After they give the instructions to the shepherds on how the shepherds are to to identify the child with the assumption that the shepherds would, in fact, go looking for him, out of the blue, the angels' buddies arrive and throw a party of their own. We see uh, verses 13 to 14. Uh, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, the content of their proclamation is not our focus today. Um, So let me summarize it. They praise God. Um, They cry out for glory to be given God in heaven, and they proclaim peace to the earth. Uh, If you are reading the KJV versus some of the other modern translations, you'll note that there's probably a bit of a difference in the reading here. There is a textual variant that makes it read a little bit differently. Um, Like in the ESV, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. As the hymn says, and uh, peace on earth, goodwill to men. So 
basically, um, just working through this really quickly, the idea is it should be God's good will to men. Um, without getting into the grammar, the angels proclaim peace to those whom God has chosen to favor. Uh, this will affect some of the ways we listen to the hymns, um, but it shows God's graciousness. In summarizing this, uh, Bach points out that there is a difference then between those whom Jesus comes for, it says, for all the people, and those who benefit from his coming, men of good pleasure. We know that this is good news of great joy for all the people, but we have peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, Bach summarizes, the angelic praise contains two basic ideas. The heavens rejoice and praise God for salvation's outworking. That's the glory to God in the highest. And then he says, number two, the people to whom God draws near through Jesus will experience the harmony and benefits that God bestows on his own. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And finally, uh, the response to all of this is one of taking God seriously and then experiencing joy and finding things exactly as God had said. The shepherds decided to take a look and see things for themselves. The angel only indicated that the baby was to be born in the city of David. Didn't say specifically the place, but they knew enough scripture to connect the dots and say, let us go to Bethlehem. They rush off and find Mary, Joseph, and the baby. And the baby entirely fits the description, you know, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, as a side observation, uh, it's interesting. God orchestrated the inconvenience that Mary and Joseph experienced, you know, having to lodge with their newborn among animals. Uh, he orchestrated that in order to provide a clear identification for the shepherds. What was not ideal in their eyes was ideal in God's plan. What inconvenienced them served others. At any rate, when they find the family, they tell them what the angels said concerning the child. After what was likely a very trying evening uh, for this couple, Mary and Joseph have reaffirmed to them that this child is in fact the Christ, uh, the Savior and Lord, because they hear it from the shepherds that that's exactly what the angels said. Evidently, others also hear what the shepherds told them. We don't know who these others are. Um, they could be whoever they ran into as they were searching for this baby. And uh, it may even be the people who got the nice space in the house that was denied a pregnant woman. <laughs> uh, and so they, they wonder. Mary, on the other hand, treasured it in her heart and pondered it all. We see that this part of the story ends with the shepherds returning, quote, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They found the baby exactly as, as had been described by the angel. But they also experienced joy, exactly as had been anticipated by the angel. Why? Was it because they found things exactly as the angels said? No. The sign and the fact that they found the sign, exactly as the angels said, were only to confirm the angel's message, right? I submit to you then, uh, the reason they rejoice is not simply that they found a baby in swaddling cloths lying in a manger, but that doing so confirmed what the angel said at the beginning. Their Savior came. It's not the fact of the baby or even the fearful euphoria of encountering an angelic host, but who this baby was, 
the big deal was not the sign, but what the sign signified. So let's take a moment to think. Do I locate joy in the signs of Christmas or in what they signify? Do I conjure up warm and fuzzy feelings about the Christmas lights and colors, the songs and the traditions, the company of friends and family, or even by contemplating the facts about a little baby in the cold in a manger? Or do I locate my joy in who that baby is? More specifically, who that baby is to me. The shepherds were told their Savior arrived. When this was confirmed and they got to see for themselves, it led to them glorifying and praising God. Again, I reiterate, you do not celebrate a Savior. You celebrate your Savior. The shepherds saw not just who this child was, but who this child was to them. He was relevant to their situation, the answer to their unspoken question, namely, who will save me? For those of us who have entrusted our lives and eternities to this Christ, we look back on the arrival of our Savior with joy. We join with Zechariah who said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. We join with Mary as she sings, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And we can say with Simeon, who saw the baby Jesus in the temple later in our narrative, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And we can, with Anna the prophetess, give thanks to God and speak of him to all who would listen. However, not everyone responded to Christ's birth with joy. It's the same facts, same baby, same Christmas night, different response. Once again, who that baby is to you will govern your response to the message of Christmas. Herod the king saw in this child not a savior, but a threat. This baby would be king where Herod would rather be king. And doesn't it all boil down to that, the lordship of Christ? We would rather be king. The unbelieving world is desperate for an excuse to disbelieve these eyewitness testimonies, to disbelieve Jesus' claims, because if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, we will have to submit where we would rather rule. We would have to surrender where we would rather fight. We would rather be delivered, or we would um, do all this. We would rather be enslaved where instead he offers deliverance. We would rather suffer where he offers salvation. If you will not have him for your Lord, you will have him for your enemy. If you will not have him for your savior, you will have him for your judge. If you will not have him for your greatest joy, you will have him for your greatest sorrow. In the end, what you do with Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make. Amen. Consider the words of the Puritan Joseph Alleyne in his book, A Sure Guide to Heaven. He writes, The unsound convert takes Christ by halves. He is all for the salvation of Christ, 
but he is not for sanctification. He is for the privileges, but does not appropriate the person of Christ. He divides the offices and benefits of Christ. This is an error in the foundation. Whoever loves life, let him beware here. Jesus is a sweet name, but men do not love the Lord Jesus in sincerity. They will not have him as God offers, quote, to be a prince and a savior. They divide what God has joined, the king who rules and the priest who saves. They will not accept the salvation of Christ as he intends it. They divide it here. Every man's vote is for salvation from suffering, but they do not desire to be saved from sinning. They would have their lives saved, but still would have their lusts. Indeed, many divide here again. They would be content to have some of their sins destroyed, but they cannot leave the lap of Delilah or divorce the beloved Herodias. They cannot be cruel to the right eye or right hand. Oh, be infinitely careful here. Your soul depends on it. The sound convert takes a whole Christ and takes him for all intents and purposes, without exceptions, without limitations, without reserve. He is willing to have Christ upon any terms. He is willing to have the dominion of Christ as well as deliverance by Christ. He says with Paul, Lord, what will you have me to do? Anything, Lord. He gives Christ the blank page to write down his own conditions. As this sounds, I'm sure, intimidating, please understand you have never met someone more patient and kind than Jesus. Please, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with joy or with food and gladness. At Christmas time, we experience what theologians call common grace, a taste of the gladness and community God meant for humanity. But it is a passing pleasure, 
A greater gladness is for the man or woman or boy or girl who hears the message of the angels to the shepherds and realizes with joy, behold, my Savior was born, my Lord, my Christ. To such a person, this is not just a baby in a manger, but the Christ who would and did die for guilty sinners. To this person, he is the answer to a guilty conscience the means of freedom from futile and self-destructive existence. He is the prince of peace, both towards God and man. And he is the greatest expression of love from the God who knows us best and wants us to be satisfied in him. When such a person celebrates Christmas, he or she celebrates salvation, cherishes mercy, and treasures the identity of Christ in his or her heart as he or she looks forward with longing and wonder to the second coming of his or her king. In Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' first coming as we look forward to his second. We look back clearly on how he is savior from our sins and look forward eagerly to the redemption of our bodies, as Paul puts it, and the arrival of the savior from our enemies. When the Christmas lights are unplugged and the wrapping paper is thrown in the trash and all that's left to eat are leftovers for days, believers should walk away from Christmas Day with the joy of the shepherds, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Once again, the joy of Christmas has to do with who that baby is to you.